This episode of Value Hive is brought to you by Tegas. If you enjoy listening to Value Hive, you'll love the Tegas product. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available expert interviews on all the public and private companies that you care about. All you have to do is log in. So if you're tired of high cost and time consuming expert research calls, give Tegas a try and see for yourself why many of the most trusted and well-respected hedge funds, mutual funds, family offices, allocators, and VCs rely on Tegas to scale their expert research and to get the critical information they need faster than ever. You can sign up for a free trial at tegas.co forward slash value hive. That's tegas.co forward slash value hive. And as a personal anecdote, I use Tegas literally every single day. It's the first resource I use when I start researching uh, a new investment, and it's one of the last things I do uh, before I finish up rounding out my research, and I know you'll love it as much as I do. Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created EmergingManagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org slash global dash investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O dot O-R-G slash global dash investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. Hey guys, it's Brandon. This week, I'm stoked to have uh, Nicholas Radis on the podcast. Uh, Nick is on Twitter at NickRadical4. And for those that don't know Nick, like myself, before we had this conversation, he is a distressed and real asset investor. He uh, is from upstate New York, and he got into distressed investing after growing up in the midst of a manufacturing collapse in upstate New York itself. He went to Cornell University, and prior to um, starting his own holding company, he uh, studied and worked under Ian Cumming and uh, is now uh, financially backed by Peter Thiel in his in his holding co and has had a chance to pick Peter's brain. And so this entire discussion is going to be a uh, culmination of Nicholas's learnings from Ian Cumming, his lessons that he learned from Peter Thiel, and how he fuses them together to uh, invest in very forgotten spaces of the markets like microcaps, dark stocks, and real assets like bombed out commercial real estate or other things like that. So it's a very unique approach, and I learned a ton. Nicholas is awesome, very, very intelligent, and uh, I know you're going to get a lot out of this conversation. So I'm going to stop talking. Let's dive straight into the episode. All right, Nick, I'm going to start our conversation with uh, a tweet that was my favorite when I was researching topics for this podcast. I was going through your uh, Twitter feed, and this one I thought was awesome. And it was a reply to somebody else, but I'm 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 just going to read your tweet. It says, "Quote: One of the least followed Buffett maxims is step over one foot hurdles. Most people would rather sound smart with vastly higher risk and the same return prospects." Uh, I think that tweet's a great place to start to give 
listeners an idea of, of your investment strategy, what you look for, how you uh, came to markets. So I'm just going to let you take that quote and kind of and kind of run with it and give us, you know, give us your whole framework based off of it. Well, uh, first, thank you for having me. <laughs> and uh, shout to our friend Ryan for arranging this. But yeah, I think with the Buffett quote, it's um, as with all Buffett quotes, it's deceptively simple. We can put countless asterisks on that and say, well, he did this and that, and it's not so straightforward. <laughs> but, you know, I think um, it's more important than ever today because we see this problem popping up. And uh, one most basic answer is that uh, with a one foot hurdle, you also get a one foot base management fee and you don't get any carried interest. So, you know, to do the simple thing isn't, it's, it's not a business, right? That mm -hmm. you, you can't say, uh, just buy MasterCard stock and don't ever call me back, right? I mean, so you need, I think Wall Street or the, you know, the financial industry, these incentives will always be there. It never mm -hmm. goes away yep. to complicate things because you can make a business out of complicating things. And we see that, uh, but the point is, it doesn't necessarily mean that's what works. And I think uh, Buffett, uh, really there's a lot of wisdom in that statement. I think everybody will basically come around to a similar conclusion. They usually come around to it when they're about 70 years old, but everyone reaches the same conclusion. It's a, it's a lot better just to, uh, uh, just take his word for it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and in my experience, or, you know, call it past 20, 30 years, you really see this come out. It's, it's also a time game that mm -hmm. uh, over 20 years, I, I would say, you know, the investment industry, it's remarkably transient. There's so many names that would be foreign now that were huge 15 years ago. Right. So it's a war of attrition, you know, that, that there, there's all, all the baby turtles don't make it to the ocean. Right. I mean, there's an enormous amount of people that just disappear. Mm -hmm. And so really, uh, yeah, I mean, if, if, uh, just everything from minimizing mistakes to, uh, being in tier one or, you know, top quality platforms, it's what wins over time. Yeah. So, do you th do you think that you you touched on this a little bit, but this I uh, this this uh, this thought of oh I have to justify returns I or I have to justify the fees that I'm charging to my clients, and so therefore the incentive structure actually works so that you can find more complex ideas because one thought process is oh you're paying me two and 20 to find this crazy Latin American gold miner that, you know, is trading at 0.5 times cash flow and with all these accounting adjustments, when in reality, you could have just bought Starbucks at its IPO and <laughs> gone to the beach forever. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so it makes me, it makes me wonder though, um, like how do you fight that urge like how ha, ha, like how do you personally resist the urge to try to have complexity for complexity's sake well foremost i don't have limited partners as <laughs> as yeah. um, 
actually a, a public company, uh, holding company CEO had told me, he said, uh, there are only two forms of permanent capital. There's your personal account and um, there's a public C Corp or a C Corp. And so we're not public, but we use a C Corp structure. And so I stopped playing the game of trying to, um, uh, well, everything, you know, the, the jumping over hurdles game. Or, or, mm -hmm. And so uh, I think that's a big part of it is that it's the incentives. You know, uh, show show me the incentive, and I'll sh I'll show you the result. That uh, you just, uh, I think the investment industry never gets away from that. Mm -hmm. uh, after the financial crisis, I remember thinking that well, it's all going to change now, right? We'll never see another scam again <laughs> after this, and it doesn't ever ever change. And so, um, I think for value investors like ourselves, uh, that really creates the opportunity. It's kind of why value investing works. Is that we see this cyclical component, and so um, yeah, I mean, I would say uh, another thing. I mean, is putting the odds in your favor, right? I mean, making it as easy as possible. It's it's kind of crazy to make the game as complicated as possible. It doesn't make any sense, but yeah. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I was. Um, I was actually joking about this with a couple of people the other day that um, with one investment that I have, which is skyscrapers, right? I mean, how hard is this? <laughs> that, it's, right. that might have value, right? Yeah. But, uh, and, you know, looking at the location, you just go on Google Maps, look at it. How complicated is this? And I joke that, you know, it reminds me of when I was teaching my grandmother chess in her 80s. I said, well, you know, here's how the rook moves and, you know. And she just took the piece and moved it forward like checkers and just took right? and, and sometimes that's the game. <laughs> yeah. You don't need to be Bobby Fisher. You know, you just just play checkers and and it gets to another one of our points. I mean, what is the objective? Right. Sometimes the objective is something other than your rate of return. I mean, mm -hmm. it's to build a following, build a business, um, you know, to be in a complex niche, right? If if you're in something like structured credit or you know whatever complicated thing crypto that you can become a gatekeeper and you know um uh, that sort of thing so there's an incentive that it has absolutely nothing to do with the performance of the asset <laughs> right but, yeah but your personal fees might be quite a bit higher yeah ed ed, ed Sakota, who's a famous mm -hmm. uh trader he it's one of my favorite quotes, he says, everyone gets what they want out of the markets and not everybody wants to make money. Some people use markets and just kind of in this, in this vein of complexity, some people use markets to, you know, flex on how smart they think they are and how, how they can figure out more complicated structures. And I think I tweeted this too, a few weeks ago or a couple weeks ago, um, you know, any, the, the longer an investment write up gets in terms of pages, the less confident I am in, in, that you know that person's either you know uh just core understanding of the idea or 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 the belief that that thing's actually a great investment um and 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 it's just layering you know it's it's actually a great visual way of seeing someone layer in more complexity than might be needed to 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 explain something yeah really good point on this is um and i think it kind of gets into you know the rest of our discussion but order of magnitude mistakes or returns 
is that I was actually just looking at this um, with a couple of friends of different, uh, they were real estate investments as well over, you know, about a decade ago. One was JCPenney and the other is Sears. So now I currently have both of those as liquidations, uh, the real estate portfolios being liquidated. But in each case, the analysis on the value was off by, you know, an order of magnitude. It was it was like a factor of 10 too high that they estimated the value to be. And these were some of the best, you know, basically all the most famous value investors did this. Mm -hmm. so, but how do you end up with that outcome? I mean, how are you so wrong? It's it's not you're wrong by 20 or 30% difference in each way. You're you're wrong by a factor of 10. Mm -hmm. And so you know, I think um, a lot of mistakes can look like that, and a lot of opportunities can also look like that as well. That something is actually worth ten times more, or, but I think, you know, uh, that line of thinking should be straightforward. You don't need the the point is you don't need the two hundred page slide deck to convey a big idea. Yeah, it should actually just be kind of obvious. Yeah. Uh, for example, I mean, one of the, uh, I think probably the the industry that, <laughs> that i'm most known for is coal right where we you know it's basically like well this is the single coal company which is peabody it uh you know provides like five percent of the energy feeds electricity feedstock for the united states and it trades as a micro cap right at 300 million dollars that's like tweet length and it doesn't have to be any more complicated and it right. sounds like that can't be you know <laughs> that people want to complicate it you know and, and when people push back and say well what about this usually they push back on minutia and if you have an order of magnitude opportunity or mistake you're not going to be right or wrong because of the minutia a bunch of details it's mm -hmm actually be the big picture yeah no i think that's i think that's well said and then the point the point there or the or the you know the question that 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 begs is how do you find what matters most like how do you determine what matters most and how do you ensure that as you improve as an investor you're 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 finding the things that matter most more quickly with each new idea I think that's almost like a signal of 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 true wisdom and improvement in investing is if you can get to what matters most more quickly over time. Um, and so how how do you learn that? How have you learned that? And how do you kind of approach that that question? Yeah, well, that's a big question. Uh, you know, I think part of it is knowing, uh, in my view, or or I think how when when I reflect on how I've improved over just let's say a decade. A lot of it starts with knowing what you want in the first place, knowing what you're shopping for. You know, don't go to the store and, uh, you know, have an idea of what you're looking for and then wait for that to come at a good right. uh, Because I think if not, so it's it really, that's the circle of competence idea. And in some ways, I actually um, narrow that even further to what I call geographic circle of competence. Mm typically with the stuff we do uh company investments we don't really go outside of the, new york and that allows yeah we don't go outside of new york and and so uh that allows and we'll get to an example of that but 
uh, it allows you to act really quickly because it clicks. Mm -hmm. And I think you're very unlikely to be an order of magnitude wrong. And so, um, you know, whereas if I were to go to Texas or something, what would I know? Right. I, would, I wouldn't know anything about the economy. And so um, I've seen big mistakes like that. People coming into New in, in fact, it's cyclical. <laughs> Every investor in New York City real estate, whether it was Japan or most recently China with the Waldorf Hotel, yep, they all make that mistake. They make that mistake. It's, it's actually just a cycle. And so um, I think limiting yourself is one answer to that. So you can have pattern recognition work for you. That when you see something, you can say, well, you, you know, I've, um, I know what this is and I like what I see, so I can act a lot quicker. Uh, another thing is, and this, this is an interesting thread, is uh, one practice that I, I've thought was crazy that I, that I would see, and it's one that Warren Buffett does that is underappreciated, is having almost a relationship with public companies where, uh, like, for example, American Express, Geico, uh, Coca-Cola, you mm -hmm. know, where they're multi-decade. I mean, the, the knowledge of the industry, particularly, you know, insurance, let's say, that you absorb from the 1950s onward, yeah. that's... Uh, it's, it's really a knowledge base or a competitive advantage that by definition can't be replaced because we aren't going to live through the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s. You know? and, <laughs> right. And there's an experience, uh, again, that, that having seen it, which uh, is cumulative over tens of thousands of hours, decades, cycles, and uh, what I thought was crazy was, you know, I had friends along the way, you know, past 20 years who they would get into an industry or a bit, you know, company of that type. And then they would just kind of quit cold Turkey on it. And I've always thought that was crazy versus, um, well, again, it's the focus, uh, the circle of competence thing, getting narrower, uh, and focusing on different industries or companies for a much longer period of time long story short is it helps you act quicker you know mm -hmm. it's an answer to your question mm -hmm. you can get rid of the noise a lot quicker yeah sounds simplistic but in you know again a time like 2009 how can someone like in the case of buffett acts you know he put out 50 to 100 billion dollars rapidly you know for a couple months uh how do you how do you do that well it's you need to know American Express or you need to know Wells Fargo or whatever it is. And mm -hmm. so that helps for the you know, industry. Yeah, I think I think the rebuttal there, and this is something that I've I've struggled with, is um the feeling and and again, I'm not saying that this is correct. This is just you know, that gut reaction when someone says, Oh, you need to narrow, 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 you know, really understand your circle of competence. Because one one hypothesis I have is I think most people assume that their circle of competence is wider than it actually is my myself included um and one way to kind of frame that is i think when you find an investment that's within your circle of competence 
it is like you said, like it just clicks in a way that other ideas don't and you just get to it much quicker. And maybe it's something that we'll never have this hard and fast rule and this, you know, hey, follow ABC. It might just be one of those things that you just know when you feel it and that might be good enough. And so that's that's kind of the one thing. Um, I think so. the second thing, the second thing is if I'm restricting my circle of competence, part of me as an investor starts to shriek because I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm missing out on so many opportunities and the amount of pitches I'm going to see will fall dramatically. And so part of me, which might be incorrect, is thinking, okay, if I reduce how many pitches I see, I'm going to reduce the amount of potential home runs that I'll end up swinging at. And so like there's, there, there's kind of that tug of tug of war there so how do you how do you kind of reconcile the two i know i know you know my logic might not even be correct but it's definitely something that exists yeah no it's 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 a nuanced challenge um you know i i think well there's ways that i do it uh, and then i think there are more general ways but you know i would say um one thing is which um actually ian cumming had said this with um in in the late 90s Right, so this is a distressed investing firm, Lucadia. But the question was, why didn't they jump into the Nasdaq of 1999-2000? You know, why didn't they get into the dot-com bubble to chase those opportunities? And his response was, "That's not what we do." You know, and that's fine. You know, we're, we what he does. You know, it's basically a distressed investment firm in real assets and financial restructuring, and that's fine. You know, I think so. So that's one answer is a more general answer is just developing an identity hmm. as an investor and to just be comfortable with that and say, you know, I just don't do this other thing. And that's OK. You know, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's just not who I am. What we do is and you fill in the blank. And I, you know, I think that's. Um, I think like having an identity as an investor or matching it up with personal experience is really powerful. Things that um, are part of, and and that's completely customized, you know, because we all have different experiences. We're all from different places. To try to match that up to where you can get an edge is is often a really powerful edge. And what the, um, what the circle of competence, that, that tends to be what the circle of competence actually is which may be separate from how people define it, right? What it, what their real advantage is might be different than what they think it is. Mm -hmm. But to, yeah, to tap into that, I think is powerful. Um, I would say with, you know, in my own case or the, the kind of practice that I'm involved with, we, I, I like limiting it to industries that don't really change. Yeah. And I, I think that kind of plays to the real assets investing now there, there, there's a little pushback on this, which is it's tougher to get growth because usually what people are talking about when they want to go to a new investment or something that feels like it might be, you know, so-called out of the circle of competence, it's that that's where the growth is. Mm -hmm. And of course, this past cycle was exceptionally punishing in that regard for value investors, that it, it was just such a bad year vis-a-vis -vis growth. A bad mm -hmm. decade, actually, year, decade that um, misspoke there. Yeah, I mean, this is the worst period on record, you know, essentially for value investing. And so that's what makes it particularly hard. I think there are uh, reasons for that, um, which if you look at 
in the 80s, in the 1980s, or even the late 1990s, GDP growth, there are these figures that are huge, you know, especially in the 80s. And I think when the economy is growing like that, there are a lot of value investments or distressed investments that basically get pulled up. It works better. When growth is 1% or whatever it might be, there's, uh, I think it changes the underlying dynamic that there are a lot of investments that they're just kind of dead. Mm-hmm. So that's why there's been the rational reason in some sense uh, why we had this growth boom in investing is that you know, you that's in in a no growth economy. That's where all the value is, right? I mean, there is sort of a logic to that. So, yeah, usually people are chasing growth, and of course, we saw that climax. But, um, but it's it's a tricky question, and I I tend to, you know, go to like a custom answer, and that's that's sort of a not that great of a great of an answer, but but that everyone does need to kind of figure it out for themselves. Yeah, well, I mean, I love I love the idea of developing an identity, and it it goes back to the to you know to the idea of of kind of freedom in restrictions, and 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 the freedom that comes with restrictions, and of course, the inverse of that is the paradox of choice. When if you have every company out in the world available to you, all you know, hundred thousand global companies, you paralyze yourself with all the information because you don't know where to start, you don't know what's what, and. Um, there really is an element of freedom if you say, you know, hey, I'm only investing in North American small cap stocks or North American industrials, or I only invest in distributors, you know, global, you know, throughout throughout the world. Yeah, yeah. There's a concept um, which I've been thinking about this for you know five or ten years, and this is something else I picked up with different experiences. I call the investor operator nexus. When you have investors on one side, pure investors, they tend to think one way. But if you have business operators, they think a completely different way. They're not diversified. They're not saying, I think I'm going to do everything. They're carving out one niche. They probably will be Northeastern distributors or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. A business operator is it's very focused. They're not diversified. And again, there are... Uh, it's it's not there's no approach that's better than the other. It's it's not making a value judgment, but it's that when a person can reach the nexus of the you know be at the center of those things, and I think you can look to uh, you know Sam Zell or I mean really all of the best investors kind of embody this. Yeah, they're 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 in the center of an industry. They know it the way an operator would. But they're also very savvy investors, right? Right. And that tends to be very powerful in reaching examples. Whereas when you look to the pure investors, um, they often, I think, and this, this is another kind of thing which we can get into, which is uh, things that I've, you know, picked up, especially over the past, let's say, decade. Uh, pure investors can deal in world of abstraction a world of what should be right not what actually is yeah and so that's the danger there um yeah i mean when you when you look at how business operators think and make money often it's it's quite different and i think um particularly the value investing community 
which certainly I consider myself part of, it went more toward like this academic kind of angle over the past, you know, 10 to 15 years. And that was kind of the desert for underperformance as well. And a lot of, um, you know, pretty poor outcomes. And so I think, and, and again, the other thing is uh, the higher profile or, you know, the older, uh, titans of this space, whether it is Buffett or Zell, or they don't recommend any of the, you know, they, they don't say that a person should, uh, you know, not live in reality and, and um, yeah. do deal in hypotheticals and don't earn any income or, you know, any, so there, there's been this direction in value investing, which um, has leading back actually to the opening quote, it's actually kind of departed from what someone like Buffett or Munger would, what they would even say, which mm -hmm. is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it, it, it reminds me of just, um, how, how disconnected some investors are. If, if, if you don't have experience in either operating a business or let's say being one step removed from someone that does operate a business, or if you're inside an operating business, um, it's, it's a modern miracle. I think when companies meet or even come close to like analyst expectations or earnings estimates or revenues estimates, like when you, when you peel back the layer of the spreadsheet and you look beyond the spreadsheet, you, you, you realize it's, you know, it's like pulling back the curtain in the wizard of Oz. You're like, Oh my gosh, like this company could have been one or two emails or one or two conversations away from like missing a huge estimate, missing a huge invoice, like not getting something out on time. And, um, you know, you realize all of a sudden that businesses, most businesses uh, are, are are planes that are trying to fly in the sky while you're putting them together at the same time. And, 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 and that, that doesn't jive with the very simple and clean spreadsheet. And then you can, you know, click the cell and move the growth uh, rate over to the right you know, five times at 10% and get your, get your, your five revenue number. Um, it's just so much more complex than that. And I think, I think part of it is we use spreadsheets to not even try to comprehend the complexity that goes on in businesses. We just say, look, I, I, I can't even, I, I can't even deal with that. I'm just going to work in my spreadsheet and live in my spreadsheet. And that that has worked over the last you know decade when everything's kind of been multiple and revenue driven, right? Because those are kind of the two easy levers you can pull in business is 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 growing revenues and then whatever multiple investors will pay. Um, but when it comes down to valuing things based on operating profits and cash flows, I mean that's when the levers get crazy and that's when that's when businesses become very complex. Yeah, I mean, well, it gets back to um, those incentives, which is you know, the spreadsheet is really a sales tool, right? Yep. <laughs> it's not actually to believe it, right? It's just to sell it to someone else that the projections only go up and to the right mm -hmm. is really the uh, motivation there. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I, I think, um, you know, I was, I was considering this. I mean, one thing, which is a, another very powerful concept, which I, I think, kind of similar to to that balancing act between the investors and the operators is being a one to three year skeptic let's say mm -hmm. but then being a 10 to 15 year optimist 
And so almost no one's at that nexus, right? Yeah. You either have hardcore skeptics like the shorts and that's, you know, not a good business. Or then, you know, you kind of have the VC side where you have hardcore optimists that can go over the cliff. Yeah. But there's very few people who balance those well. Uh, I think, you know, again, it, it's it's where you narrow it down to actually the investors who are the most successful. You know, someone like Buffett, of course, you know, back to that, which is, you know, he's holding, he holds a huge amount of cash and he's obviously a short-term skeptic and, you know, has been for quite a while. But then he balances that with the uh, American tailwind that, you know, you sort of never want to bet against America. Right. Which is actually true. You know, and I've come to appreciate that, that over time, you know, over a 15-year horizon, let's say 10 to 15-year horizon, it's incredible how, uh, you know, you, you sh it, things will actually overperform what you think. Mm -hmm. From the bottom of the financial crisis, no one would have ever said that we are, or even, you know, a couple years after the financial crisis, no one would ever said that we would have these markets like we've seen today. That would have been crazy to say that. People would, at that time, the narrative would have been it's never going to come back. And, you know, the, the idea that you'd be in some huge bubble and all that, that would have been beyond the pale to even say that. No one believed, no one anticipated that stuff. Yeah. Where, uh, the, these companies that are trillions of dollars, that would have sounded insane if, you, if you'd said that to someone only a decade ago. Yeah. Yeah, that is wild because now... And I've, I've I've said this before, but when you have trillion dollar market caps, I mean anything under a billion dollars these days is is small to micro cap, um, which is which is kind of hard to fathom. But you you brought up an interesting point on being a skeptic, you know, a one to, a one to three year skeptic, and then a ten year plus optimist. Mm -hmm. And the first thing that popped into my head is this is kind of the father daughter dynamic in the sense of. If you're a father and 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 you have a daughter that starts dating somebody, right? For that first one to two years or whatever, as a father, you're prop and you know this is something I went through when I was trying to court my wife. It was like you know, hey, this guy, you know, her father is a skeptic. He, you know, he's 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 not going to give all his cards, um, and he's kind of looking to make sure that you're not you know some serial killer hiding in the closet. And then once you know you do get married. Then you switch to that optimist. Then you switch to like, okay, so for the next, you know, rest of your life, like I'm gonna be rooting for you. I'm in your corner. Like I'm gonna make sure that, you know, you are taken care of and that you're doing everything. I'm I'm gonna be your cheerleader. Um, and it's and it's funny because that is kind of an interesting model for investing where it's you find this company and you start dating this company and you say, okay, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna see, you know, what you're made of. And then once they prove themselves or once they show themselves over time then you start going from looking for reasons for them to fail to then you kind of looking for things to hold on to, to keep holding the stock. Um, which kind of brings me to the point of you never sell it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which, you know, I, I'm, I'm not like a never sell fanboy, but if you, if you really want to have mega, mega returns from investing, um, I think I think that's a requirement. Like you have to turn, you have to flip to an optimist, and you have to find reasons to keep holding something when it when when most people say you shouldn't. I mean, I, I think there's no doubt about it. I, you know, I, I often kind of 
consider this thought experiment and you see this uh you know being around people in operating businesses but it's the the thought experiment i mean if you're at the country club or something and you're around a bunch of people in their 80s and you know they're worth hundreds of millions of dollars <laughs> billions of dollars or something and you say how did you get there right well it's it's not going to be uh you know i i yoloed some some call options or i mean that's not the story i mean yeah. no, no ever ever <laughs> or and it's it's not going to be some uh it's not even going to be some short-term thing it's 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 going to be very unglamorous you know it's it's first starts with i just worked like crazy which has kind of gone out of style i mean that's kind of a tough reality it's, it's going to be someone who worked like crazy at a basic business probably was very focused mm -hmm. You know, it's it's going to be a lot of uh, usual suspect type businesses. Oh, I own all this real estate. I, you know, I'm the head of a bank. Uh, it's it's like basic stuff that we all know, but it's deeply unglamorous because it's like you know, or like fitness, right? It's hard once you yep. you know. So there's all exactly like you know, uh, diet and fitness, and there's always that opening for the quick fix because. Okay it's what everyone wants to hear no one wants to hear that it's hard and so that has to be balanced of course there's uh, just the the reality which is we do want to expedite that process you know that uh <laughs> we want results i mean and people do get them quicker so how i boil this down or you know i think how my own my own process has developed over called the past decade was going back well uh you know warren buffett also you know is uh quoted as saying that you know his process used to be maybe 85 percent ben graham 15 percent bill fisher and migrated to about 50 50. and i think when i consider my own my own process i kind of uh augment that to it's about 50 percent ian cumming of lucadia and it's about 50% Peter Thiel. And so why I consider that, in, who's my investor? And the reason why, it, it's funny because in a way, uh, Ian Cumming would be in stuff that Ben Graham would never touch. <laughs> like what? Uh, you know, like uh, prepaid phone card companies to Central America and that kind of thing, or just, you know, uh, stuff that would be too gamey for you know, too dicey for Ben Graham that mm. um you know stuff in bankruptcy I mean uh comically uh bad you know distressed stuff which uh you know the the hard rock hotel casino <laughs> but it's uh so you know it's deeper it's sort of deeper distress than Ben Graham and I yeah. think uh, that's been a baton that I've tried to run with and then on the teal side and both these guys i spent a lot of time with the uh in in many ways i mean he's a greater optimist than phil fisher ever you know he's he's seeing growth rates that right crushed phil fisher <laughs> so and i i think you know there's a couple interesting lessons there and why i i, I believe again it's one of these strange balancing acts just like you said about the you know the father and the daughter it's it's like it's very tough to get those to balance mm -hmm. 
or like the investor and the operator conversation, right? These things don't naturally balance. And mm-hmm. I think those, you know, holding both of these ideas in your mind at once and finding finding a bridge between them is maybe where the insight comes from, right? I mean, and I think, again, every investor can find their own version of it. And that's the first thing that all of these guys would recommend is to customize it to you. Uh, I mean, Peter has said that, right? Like, don't, if if you're asking how to be Mark Zuckerberg and you're, you know, you're kind of trying on a hoodie to see how you look or it's, it's already wrong, you know, yeah. it's, you can't, but too many investors value investing. They, I mean, we're, we're all guilty of it. I've been guilty of it for a long time. We all want to, um, you know, there are these strong role models, right? And the first thing that all of those people, again, including the guys like Cumming or like Teal, the first thing they would say is, you know, be yourself. Right. Discover, loops right back to that identity, you know? And and I think, um, yeah, so on the growth side, you know, slanting more toward I think the definition of that, like in the on the teal side, would be uh, thinking about the world in a well, to take his word, uh, you know, substantive way. That you know what has value in the world. You know, thinking more abstractly. Yeah. You do think he does spreadsheets? No. <laughs> <laughs> right. He doesn't read balance sheets. Never read my balance sheet. They don't. I mean. He doesn't care. I mean, that because it's because I think he understands it's not really that's not the fulcrum. It's not what's going to make the difference. Mm-hmm. Rather, you know, thinking about I mean, I think I, I can't speak, you know, obviously I can only I can't speak for anyone else. I mean, I could just, you know, my perception, but the question is like, how do you actually get the returns? Yeah. Like, I think his question. But. Yeah, and I think I think part of I I remember I think in his talk um, competition is for losers, which I think he gave at uh, Stanford. Yeah. At one point, uh, PayPal was growing like some astronomical number, and he did say in the presentation that um, just for the sake of like understanding where the long-term drivers are he said that he put in paypal's growth and stuff into like a 10-year dcf and he discounted that at i think he said he his discount rate was like 50 percent. it was like 30 or 50 percent. and he said you know hey like what i found and what i realized is 80 percent of the growth 80 percent of the value that paypal um derived was after year seven and eight and I, you know, at that point, I, I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't know the rest of the quote, but basically like, that's kind of this monumental thing of like, oh my gosh, like all of the value is in, is in the far distant future, all of the value from, from, from the cash flows. Um, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a super fast growing company or if you're, you know, kind of a stalwart boring business. Um, it's just, it's just fascinating. Like m- spreadsheets to me, I think like that's like that, that's where the value is in, 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 in understanding that. It doesn't matter what happens this quarter, this year, next year. Like, what matters is if you're looking out on, you know, over ten years. Like, did you get that long-term picture roughly correct? Well, and and do you know what the punchline is? No, I don't. Well, and they underestimated it. 
It was yeah. underestimated. They, they sold low. <laughs> At a 50% discount rate, they still underestimated. <laughs> Dramatically underestimated. You know, they and on PayPal and Facebook that that uh, yep. PayPal, I mean, what what market cap did that hit? 300 billion or something. That's crazy. I mean, he got rid of it at 1.5. That's left all the money on the table, right? And got out of Facebook and left 10 billion on the table. I mean, that's an important concept. And I, I think, you know, it deals with um, you know, some of your previous questions i mean it, it, you know the, the theory of intrinsic value right and what what is an intrinsic value you know it's interesting that it's value investors we hear that word all the time no one really defines it yeah it is an intrinsic value and so it's it's notable that in those cases um yeah they actually underestimated it uh, that phenomenon of the cash flows being in the later years that was seen in the buffalo evening news as well and sees candies mm -hmm where it's actually backloaded. And I would say this, yeah, the, well, again, the, the long run optimist, uh, the triumph of the optimist, that this is a really key mistake, I think, yeah. with investors that, uh, and I've seen examples of it. I mean, there's the uh, one that I often cite is um, the wealthiest person for a while in my town was an investor in IBM stock. Do you, do you know how many, because IBM was founded where I am in upstate. Yeah. It's also the uh, we're, we're also Southern tier of New York was the birthplace of John D. Rockefeller. Dick's Sporting Goods as well actually came out of here when it was two. Oh, wow. Yeah, two stores. <laughs> I went to high school. Crazy. <laughs> yeah, they have two. They're not even on the nice part of town, you know. And so this is a great place. But but uh, yeah, for a long time, the wealthiest person in town was the uh, owner of IBM stock. Passive. It wasn't his full time job. He owned a funeral parlor. Hmm. And um, so he beat out all the, for a period, uh, you know, he was bigger than all the real estate owners and the businessmen and all this. Wow. Yeah, but he started with about 100 shares. And That's he just, crazy. just held. That's all he did. Now, of course, the timing was good that it was early on. But I think um, what, yeah, it was a never sell. And, and the key to that is, you actually you have a call option in effect with no no expiration date it's right. open, it's open ended right and that open ended part's the whole key yep and so i i think with most investors especially young ones gets to mistakes uh overwhelm and again there there's a lot of asterisks like well what if this what if that what if it's a mature company what if it goes the wrong way or it doesn't grow or there's all what ifs but mm -hmm. In general, um, I don't think, as you'd said, you're not, you know, people won't generate the really big outcomes unless they have some kind of consistent exposure. Buffett himself kind of constantly hammers that home, you know, that um, the best asset to own is a good business. How many times, you know, as he said that. But we see, you know, time and again, people get into things that aren't even businesses. Mm -hmm. They're securities, or maybe they're not even securities in some cases. They're they're, <laughs> yeah, we don't even know what they are nowadays. Yeah. But they're not businesses, right? And that's a huge mistake. Mm. So it's and I, I've kind of again also with a dichotomy framed this as you know what I would call like backbone compounding, just as you know, like forming your backbone that I've suspected that most people 
uh, in investing at all actually just don't compound. It sort of stands to reason that um, why is everyone not getting very well off over time, right? The world doesn't look that way, right? I mean, the world is not distributed that way. So, I mean, it, but it's, I don't think it's that people aren't really investing. Now, uh, I believe, um, you know, you can, I think Buffett had cited this. I mean, that individuals' returns underperform even the index because they bought, they trade is a big part yeah. of it. So they will consistently underperform the index. But I would guess, and just based on like lived experiences, which includes changes in industries and that kind of thing, um, changes in fortune, let's say, over the very long term, there are very few people who have any compounding. Maybe they compound at one or two percent. Mm -hmm. But when we see no, when we see short-term numbers in the market, 15%, 20%, right? If a person compounds at 20%, as Buffett has, they would become a billionaire. Or as I often cite the other partner in Lucadia, who's the head of Je or the chairman of Jeffries today, Joe Steinberg, it appears that he started with about $100,000 in savings, had that invested in Lucadia, he now has a billion dollars worth of Jeffrey stock, right? It went from $100,000 to a billion dollars personally. It's his personal account. How did he do? Well, that's about 25%. But in any yep. single year, 25%, I know guys who are disappointed with that. They're yep. upset with that. <laughs> like, yeah. So again, it's that reality gap. That mm -hmm. There's almost no one in the world like Joe Steinberg, right? There's no one who gets that. You know, there's like yeah. the guys on the Forbes 400 who get that, that outcome. So the point is like the vast majority of people, they're not really compounding. Right. And they... And importantly, they don't have a mechanism for compounding, meaning generating interest and then reinvesting the interest and then earning more on top of that, right? Interest on interest. That's not what most people are doing. What most people are doing is they have a quoted price and the bid goes up, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like saying, I mean, if you if you put an old pair of jeans on eBay and the bid goes from $5 to, you know, 10, are you compounding? There's no reason. <laughs> right now yeah there's no and that'll strike out it'll just eventually strike out there there's no reinvestment mechanism again we looked at berkshire hathaway as an example although it's true of every other you know high profile you know whether it was lucadia whether it's uh sam zell or take your pick that if there's a reinvestment mechanism right they generate interest you know uh mm -hmm. bank of American Express, right? I mean, these are interest on interest businesses or rental of real estate and buying more real estate. My point, though, is I, I think uh, the average investor doesn't even set that up as backbone compounding. They would be better served, I think, as kind of a minor takeaway, let's say, as just identifying some kind of way to compound. Maybe the index is their way. Um, mm -hmm. or businesses like, you know, good businesses as Buffett has done, which can reinvest. Yeah. Credit card companies were an example of those banks. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I kind of love the idea of the, of the genes on eBay where, you know, people think compounding means holding a stock that goes from five to 10 over a couple of years. Um, but they forget that reinvestment part, which is, which is critical. You've, You've mentioned Ian Cumming, and 
I want to dive a little bit deeper into that and kind of get get to um, you know a roundabout way on kind of what you do now and 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 how you invest. So walk us through because I believe you used to work with Ian. Um, and so how did how, how did you end up working with him? And then what were kind of the major lessons you learned um, while while investing with him? Well, that was in New York City. Um, this was uh, 2010. So what's interesting is at that time. And I think this is also a pretty good takeaway that the narrative was very different. The narrative was not that you're uh, getting sort of an invaluable experience or mentorship. The narrative was Wall Street went bust, and there's there's no you know there's no jobs basically at that time. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting that it, in a moment you can be have it you you can have a wonderful opportunity. And it's not even the overarching societal feeling, or you know, what people, what everyone else thinks that things are about, which itself is kind of like the essence of value investing, right? That yeah. everybody kind of thinks a different thing. Very different environment in New York City after the financial crisis. And so, prior, well, there's a funny story I tell, which is uh, I was riding a Metro North train up to uh, Westchester County. And I see a guy who's next to me, you know, cross a little bit, and he's a curious looking guy. He's got a suit on and running shoes and a phone that was a, you know, like a brand that you just don't see, like some kind of like global phone type of thing. And then he, and I'm looking at him and he takes out his um, materials and he's just ripping through 10Ks. This is like midnight, you know, <laughs> this guy's working. And I'm like, wow, you know. And then he he actually takes out a beer in a in a paper bag and is drinking like a you know like a thirty two or and and then he flips over his bag to get his materials as he's just like intensely uh, going through annual reports and the bag says Lucadia National and I and I'm sitting there on the train I'm like two years out of school and I'm thinking I've discovered what I want to do in life <laughs> now I didn't know who the guy was a couple months later when we all connect, which was around the time of the uh, Lucadia annual meeting, uh, it was the CFO. <laughs> it was wow. Joe Orlando, the CFO. And so uh, I think that intensity was uh, a big attraction. But the yeah, the interesting part about that experience was a lot of what I picked up from coming, because I was much younger, right? And um, there were, it was a company that was essentially winding down as an independent entity. Even by 2010, he had alluded to that was the case you know he's looking to sell the company or find a find a succession plan or resolution and what was interesting about that and i've had this repeatedly actually is that they uh people can treat you differently in a favorable way if if actually they're teaching you to be like them rather than teaching you to be their successor mm-hmm and so, uh, for example, uh, the message from Ian Cumming was, well, in verbatim, was do a deal. That everybody's looking for something else. It kind of, again, echoes the same conversation. And he would be the number one critic of, of stuff like spreadsheets. But he would say, you know, everybody's looking for some kind of filler or something that's going to make it happen for them or, you know, uh, some kind of magic or something to work. Yeah, it was, you know, just like 
if you want to do the type of thing that I did, I mean, get a bunch of money together from your friends or whoever will give it to you. Doesn't matter how you, you know, and again, I, I they started with really low money, like uh, $100,000 each and some leverage from other people about maybe 1.2 million or something. Yep. But, and just do a deal. That was his uh, advice. And I would say, you know, just to like abstract that or to make it as a takeaway message, it's it's just like do something, take action. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody's looking for that not to be the answer, right? It's it's not about them. It's about someone else has to kind of give the opportunity. And I think with the benefit of like 12 years hindsight, that was an important message because what he was conveying to me is what he himself did. Mm-hmm rather than what he would tell someone who's supposed to take over for him or someone who had higher responsibilities. Yeah. You know, like the intern level, like myself, like was a different message than if you are supposed to do deals. Yeah. It's so, you know, uh, I mean, or phrased differently, right? Do you, do you think that someone like Todd Combs is getting the same, you know, is he doing the same thing that Warren Buffett did to build up this money? No. Right. I mean, that, it's not the same, or Tim Cook is not Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, it, and it's not supposed to be. Yeah. It, I mean, it's, it's a different stage, you know, different level of maturity in the company. But the point is, if you want the real message uh, from the person, uh, that was very fortunate with, with both the Teal experience and the Lucati experience that they gave very unfiltered advice mm-hmm. yeah so- well the, i mean the 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 idea of just going out there and, and taking action and doing the deal you you you've said uh sam zell a couple times in this podcast and i love his book am i being too subtle because it's a it's a great example of of a guy just taking action and not necessarily waiting for you know the universe in air quotes to give him permission. Um, he just went deal by deal and he started in a very small area. I think he started in like Ann Arbor, Michigan or something like right around the university of Michigan. And he just went deal by deal. And, um, you know, I think, I think a lot of investors, value investors in particular, they get, uh, into this philosophical trap of, Oh, I just need to read like one more Nick sleep letter. I just need to read one more Buffett annual letter before I can really go out and do something. It's like, no, I mean, just go out there, find a company, analyze it, invest it, and 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 if you make money, great. If you don't make money, great. Like you learn from it, and then just you know, make sure you don't blow up. Always have chips on the table, and and just kind of keep doing that process. Yeah, I think everything you've said there. I mean, there's a lot within that. I mean, I I think um, yeah, Zell. It, it connects with the um, crafting your own identity. He very much has it right. Yep. The, and and it's a geographic circle of competence. As you said, he started young with the buildings. It's not a right or wrong answer. It's just, why don't I run with this? This is something that's working for me. I'll run with this. That's kind of, I, I think that's a more important process than is giving, you know, that it's typically given credit for. And also, uh, yeah, with value investing, I mean, there's almost been a systematic removal of that, that it's okay that we kind of have this academic circle uh, not literal, but figurative that, you know, we're, we're just going to talk about the writings of different people and it ends there. <laughs> that's, that's an end. Yeah. And so that's gone too far. I mean, um, yeah, it's not to be super critical about it, but it's just a fact. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think, uh, exactly as you said, um, 
that that the universe is going to intervene. And again, I I feel the pain because I used to have that to some degree. And you know, even my you know, business, one of my business partners today, who's also a phenomenal mentor, uh, Anthony Sardul, who is mainly in the real estate industry, you know, in real estate industry as well. You know, I was kind of expressing this to him, looking for an answer, because I think, to be fair, I mean, as younger investors, we're all looking for answers, right? I mean, that tends to be of the 20s or 30s age investor, people are looking for answers. And, you know, the, I think the takeaway is, yes, the universe intervening is not an answer. My, you know, partner, he's in his 60s, sort of my Charles Munger of sorts. He, uh, he had said, you know, you're just going to keep waiting. <laughs> that's what he said. Nothing's going to happen. That's what's, that's what's going to happen. Nothing. If you yeah. wait, nothing will happen. The world will simply pass you by. It's a very teal message as well, I would say. Uh, even more so. I mean, I think, uh, the, I would put it this way. With the three names there, uh, the, the lessons, let's say, from coming, the lessons from teal, who uh, spent a, a lot of time with them, like in New York City and his apartment and, and that kind of thing, that um, they're, and, and also uh, Sardula, who's my you know closest partner, that those three mentors, they, they're very rooted in reality. One of their skills, a top skill, which you really don't see in many others, is the ability to discard bad ideas very quickly. Mm -hmm. They can they could just say that won't work, period, and be very accurate about that and just move on. Right. Whereas um, it's for um, outside passive minority investors or, you know, uh, just general investors, usually there's this phenomenon of getting carried away with different themes and stories. We, we see that a lot rather than simply being fast and discarding it. Yeah. I would say those guys are very good at that. An interesting connection is uh, actually a, a good friend of mine went out to Cizel the a couple times, the purpose of which was about Sears. Mm -hmm. We had looked at this. Uh, it was this long-running failed investment saga that was, um, I think, important in the distressed or value space over the past decade. So my friend flew to Chicago to see Zell. And um, funny enough, I, well, yeah, the message that he said is uh, once the CEO of Sears became, uh, or the controlling shareholder, so talk about investor operator dynamic, uh, once he became a shopkeeper, you know, like I knew, he Zell said, I knew it was over. Like that that's the end. You're not going to be a shopkeeper and actually run this place. Yeah. The interesting thing is uh, coming, We'd asked, you know, we had this conversation as well. Same thing. He said the exact same thing. He just immediately uh, said that this is not going to work hmm. as far back as 2010. Yeah. So the, the ability to discard ideas, I would say Peter is actually extremely strong at that as well. Zeroing in and just um, saying that uh, won't work. And I, I think that's a differentiator that doesn't get talked about. Yeah, 100%. I mean, and it makes me makes me think if there's a holy grail to an investor, right? Um 
like if you if you were to uh yeah, I used to I used to play uh the Madden NFL franchise as a kid on on Xbox and PlayStation and, and the one of the one of the best parts about that game is you can create a character and so you can have speed 99 uh throw power 99 basically like create Mike Vick <laughs> that's all that's all that's all I did we just recreate Mike Vick um but from 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 an investor's perspective the holy grail there like if you could create your own character super character is you know you you take their ability to figure out what's most important in an idea move that to 99 and then the other thing you do is you 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 give them the ability to quickly shoot down an idea for very specific reasons like you mentioned like very quickly discard ideas that they think are bad that end up being you know that 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 structurally are not bad so and what i mean by structurally is they may say no on a on a on on a business 10 times maybe one or two of those end up working but structurally that idea they are very good at saying no that won't work and it doesn't most of the time and like those are the two attributes i think like some sort of hall of fame like create your own investor um that to me is 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 kind of the end game and then and then working your way back as 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 someone that's trying to strive for that um constantly using that as kind of your north star yeah, which uh, also matches up with an important concept, which uh, I think with time, people instinctively start to pick this up. It aligns with what I was saying about compounding, how very few people actually compound. And it's one of the key takeaways actually from Peter, which is um, power law distributions. Buffett has said it with, you know, something like eight to 10 investments are the whole track record. Yeah. And, you know, there are hundreds more that just kind of don't matter. They're average or that the power law distribution is, is that you, you kind of have one runaway success. This is very much the Phil Fisher mindset as well, Motorola, whatever he had, that you, you will have the bulk of returns concentrated in a small number of things. And I think um, most people, it's not that they don't have good ideas. It's that they have a lot of things that don't work out as well. Right. And and that's sort of an insidious process is letting too many of those things saying yes to too many things is um not the way to go. And then the good ideas they have they end up selling at a double because they want to realize the profit. <laughs> yeah, every time. I mean you're just okay. slashing the power of law right in half. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Where would we be without that practice? Yeah, I mean it's that's that's what everyone does. I mean, and yeah, we need to sell those to. That's what people uh, mean when they they talk about you know we'll cut the flowers to water the weeds or you know these old sayings. Yep. They're really saying yeah the power law. Yep. And it's amazing how I mean you well <laughs> the ultimate example is selling AutoZone to prop up Sears right that was the ultimate example yep. that AutoZone was a power law uh, outcome and that capital was put to prop up Sears which filed for Chapter Eleven and so. Yeah, I mean, uh, you you see this all over, and and so that's the big takeaway I would say from Teal is that um, you can never underestimate those. And and I think he'd be the first probably to agree with this that you you can never underestimate those power law outcomes. Yeah, and they can go longer than you you would think. And but but that's kind of the game. And when I say you know fifty percent coming, fifty percent Teal is to try as best as possible. And of course, not saying I mean. You know, no one's perfect at it, including him. And but to try as best as possible to tap into that, yeah, 
because it's so powerful you know it's it will overwhelm everything else mm -hmm. yeah i want to i want to end our conversation and kind of kind of use that as a segue into how you invest today and and I kind of think about it as 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 two pillars. It's real assets and then distressed, and maybe there's some overlap there. But mm -hmm. kind of using your framework of 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 kind of this coming teal mixture, um, how how do you invest today? And 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 if you could give us some examples, you know, it it doesn't have to be stuff you own now, stuff you've owned in the past, of just using these frameworks to invest in the way you do. Yeah, well, it's you know, I I think. Uh, with the real assets, it deals with sort of this, you know, this intrinsic value theory. What is an intrinsic value? And also the theory, you know, the concept of collateral. To me, it just, it sort of works really well with value investing. Value investing, you're essentially purchasing paper assets, right? Or securities at a discount to some intrinsic value. Real assets, hard assets, things like defined as real estate, commodities, companies, things that have, uh, you know, uh, a fundamental worth kind of as, take Buffett's example about farms, that, um, you know, if you have farms, that, you know, in the Midwest that produce food, I mean, it, there's a solid value to that, that maybe it will fluctuate a little, but it's probably not going to fluctuate with the same volatility as, you know, AOL or MySpace or something. Yeah. There's something unusually comfortable at that with value investing, not to say unto itself, it's maybe the greatest place that the drawback being it tends to be low growth is the problem. But I think it works uniquely well with value investing, purchasing at a discount because you have a reasonable, uh, reasonably stable asset. Whereas in contrast to purchasing things in uh, like, retailers, service companies, companies that require what might be called like flair, you know, to where it's, uh, you know, a fashion label or something that that doesn't work too well. Or um, I think particularly tech doesn't, you know, it, it changes too much. It's, it's mm -hmm. difficult to do that. It's not to say there's anything wrong with it. I mean, I think value investors get overly criticized that they're, um, small-minded or something you know or too limited and they won't look at those i don't think it's about that it's just a matter of reasonably being able to assess an intrinsic value or call it a, almost a collateral value let's mm -hmm. say so i mean that's the real asset side and yeah the distress side is just purchasing at a discount um as an example i mean of um one which was pretty intriguing as a unique opportunity today which i think may not combine so much on the teal side although maybe to some degree but something i'm interested in is commercial real estate it's mm -hmm. interesting that no one no one that i talk <laughs> is really excited about that idea everyone thinks it's a bad idea yeah so you know that's that's one of my indicators but it's like <laughs> it's like universally unpopular mm -hmm. But it plays to, I think, one of the best, uh, actually, Howard Marks uh, most important things, which is just simply the question, and who doesn't know that, right? Well, right. office is bad. Well, and who doesn't know, right? It's on the front page. We, we got it, right? We know yeah. that it's bad. And so it's interesting how people view the, the most obvious thing as like an insight. We all know <laughs> it, right? <laughs> 
And so I like commercial real estate. How we got into this, by definition, it's a historic buying point in New York City, right? I mean, look at what happened. You know, I mean, it's almost it's it's the clearest buying point. What I like about this, I, I often describe this thesis. It's uh, it's not a YOLO. It's an investment. Mm -hmm. It's in you know, and we've and I think over the past five years, the bubble, people, you know, everyone's lost track of what an investment actually is. It means you put the money down and you hold, and you you know you you're, you're looking to a future outcome that's better than what you put down, right? Yep. But but it doesn't mean it's going to skyrocket tomorrow, right? It means you're the 10 to 15 year optimist. That's what I'm saying. And so with commercial real estate, the, the first thing that got us into this, um, so this is a more technical one. Mm -hmm. uh, this is more the coming style. We, uh, and I don't talk about this too much on, you know, I usually talk about the stuff like coal companies or, but it's, uh, it's called do art film services was a, a big success that we've had. Okay. Yeah, so this is a, an OTC uh, name. It was part of the dark stock ban. Oh, so, wow. Okay. Yeah, it enca encapsulates a lot of these things we've been talking about, uh, such as knowing what you want. I followed this for years. And I got particularly interested in when I heard that this dark stock ban would be happening, that thousands of securities would be pulled off of OTC markets and essentially rendered illiquid. You, know, yep. you can't buy them on mainstream brokers, right? That uh, Fidelity and TD or all these different brokers, Schwab, they banned this. So you can't buy these, you know, thousands of different securities. Right. The issue here is you have a search problem. How do you know which one you want, right? That that so many, it's, so it actually plays to one of your past questions. How do you know what you want? If you have thousands of junk securities, you, you sort of need to know in advance. You're, you're not going to go through it one by one. Yeah. So in this case, I followed the company for years. It does play to the geographic circle of competence that it was in New York City. I know the location. The whole part of this, uh, or the you know investment thesis was they, they own a building. The building is worth more than the whole business. Uh, I view this as kind of the, you know, it's like the, the Nick Radical version of net net that um, yeah. including that prime property value actually makes it really an excellent uh, Ben Graham style net net. Yep. But the property value is it's not marked to market. It's just held at the balance sheet at historic cost. Right. So, right. Yeah. We look at a lot of those situations and those, um, those are, those are fun. Those are the, the those are really fun. So okay, so it's so 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 sorry to cut you off, but it's you know the mark to market. It's not it's not mark to market. So you found this and 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 kind of keep going. Well, so this is yeah, this is a core competency for us. We we have a bunch of these, um, and so the dark stock ban comes. It suddenly is, and we we were able to accumulate a little before, and it becomes illiquid. So we go to a full service broker. <laughs> so we start paying these huge commissions. And doing it by phone, I'm on a phone actually calling the guy from the grocery store saying, you know, buy 500, <laughs> the old school. <laughs> it's a lot of fun, you know? If yeah. You don't, yeah, if you don't have fun with the game, I mean, that's that's the starting point, you know, is you need to be having fun with this stuff and, and get excited about finding these weird things. But mm -hmm. yeah, so <laughs> we have a full service broker who's able to source shares. And so for a period of time, we were kind of the market itself. We were the whole buy side of the market. Right. As massively sold off. So to give you an idea um, how this resolved, um, 
Our bottom tick was about $6.5 million market cap to give an idea of how small this was. Uh, now, this was good timing. I mean, this was just, this was good luck in quotes. I mean, I feel sorry for, the, but the chairman passed away, mm -hmm. right? And, and so immediately, you know, after buying this, and that puts the building up for sale. So we buy, this is the point, we, our entry point is this expert market, you know, dark stock situation where we're sourcing this in a very primitive way through a full, right. service, full service broker. The exit is, the building is now being marketed by JLL. So one of the commercial real estate firms is selling the building. And so our bottom tick is 6.5 million. The building, they're asking 38 million. Wow. Yeah, they're willing to negotiate a little, you know, the mid 30s will get the deal done. But, you know, let's say if we make uh, four times our money, then we would be pretty happy with that in a year. And so uh, that gives you an idea of more of an incoming style thing that you have a failed business with a valuable asset, a real asset. That's um, the example there. Now, uh, on the blending to more the, the Peter style, um, you know, I, I think the, the question that he asks, in my view, uh, or, you know, from my experiences with him is he's asking, he, he's thinking about the world and saying what has value in the world, like what sounds like it has, again, that order of magnitude difference. What is something that's hugely valuable? Starting with that as a question. Mm -hmm. And that leads more to uh, our other larger positions, let's say in New York City commercial real estate. It's, uh, of course, this is not PayPal or Facebook, but it just gets to a question that, geez, when I'm buying these skyscrapers uh, where the tenant is Ken Griffin, that just sounds like that might have value, right? And there's, yeah. <laughs> and there's yeah. no one else in the market that seems to be interested at all. So uh, how'd, you, how'd, you, how'd you find that like skyscraper deal? Walk me through that one. Well, you know, the answer, I mean, when I first, <laughs> uh, knowing what you want, I think is, is a key that, um, when I first, uh, moved to New York city, I was, I was 21 and this was shortly after September 11th. And so it was, um, another down market, you know, a, yep. a horrible situation. Yep. And. Yeah, so I've been in New York City after every one of these busts for like 30, 40 years. I'm 40 now. And uh, I remember, so I lived on kind of on the Upper East Side, and it used to be cheap at the time. And I see this building going up, and I think it's 57th, and, and I see the sign, I've said, this is incredible. And it just says, you know, Vornado Realty Trust. And I said, I don't know what this is, but I like it, you know. And I thought for quite a long time, when I look at my uh misses or my mistakes of omission that was one that i should have bought i look to uh the credit card companies i think it's very difficult to uh for any investor to look at those credit card companies and say they you know that that wasn't clear enough that they should have invested in those right right um that's an example and then i would also say blackstone group actually after the financial crisis i was looking at that um and um that was a mistake, you know, because it's possible to understand that and understand the people involved with that are top shelf. Um, well, the punchline is today, Vornado is 
one of our large caps, which we don't really do large caps, but that's the one. Mm -hmm. uh, it's below where it was at that time. It's below the September 11th, you know, after September 11th. So that's just crazy. I think. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. So that's a long-winded way where you think, I th taking a page from Peter, again, not exactly trying to emulate Peter and doing, doing technology companies. Which wouldn't, you know, again, that's the first thing he would say is not his message. You know, the yep. way to learn from Peter is not to imitate Peter, but it's um, it's to take that thought process of what sounds like it could be pretty valuable. I think skyscrapers sound valuable, you know, and give it ten years, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I think I think that's I think that's awesome, and I I, I just just selfishly I do want to go back to the to the dark stocks thing because that. That to me sounds so fascinating. Um, these quasi private deals at this point where you're, you know, exchanging shares uh, person to person almost. How do you, you know, find find these today? Like if, you know, if, if I'm if I'm listening and I say, oh, that sounds fascinating. Like, how do I find other dark stocks? Like, what would I do? Where would I go? Who would I talk to? Oh, well, you know, I think uh, number one, I mean, I, I think it's it goes right back to that starting point of, of just having some sense of what you're looking for because mm -hmm. you, you're sifting through a tremendous amount of crap. And, and a lot of it is just, it's no good. Yeah. There's, I mean, OTC is, I, I think riddled with that. Yep. This decade, I believe OTC is a really important theme. We're kind of exclusively in that area. I would say like okay. that's most of what I like is actually very small, which is. And so, and so when you say very small, do you mean like sub $50 million? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. If sub 30 even. Yeah. So that's, I think, very interesting today mm -hmm. uh, for, for a number of reasons. But to approach it, my two cents, I mean, there's there's a lot of people in it. There's been a tremendous uh, laggard results in OTC. It's, you know, there's been a bad stretch where a lot of people, they've done really poorly. And you, you see a lot of bad businesses. I think it's a difficult trade-off between... Or, or was, you know, if you go back a decade, let's say, and you say, geez, there's these OTC stocks that are these, you know, uh, completely busted Walmart suppliers or something that are a million dollars in size or whatever it is. And do they have a better competitive advantage over, let's say, the credit card companies, right? That's really tough to get, you know, or stagnant land companies. There's a lot of that. It's, it's tough to get roped into OTC with that. Um, and I think over the past decade, it was kind of mistaken. Today, it's a little bit different trade-off. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I think number one is just to have a sense of what you're looking for. I mean, we've pegged a bunch of them. I think it fits perfectly. In fact, everything we're talking about, it is actually where the 50% uh, coming, 50% teal works. So this is the whole key. In that you're buying at the coming discount, but you need to pinpoint the power law teal upside yeah that's the catch because it doesn't make any sense unless you have a very big winner right you need to narrow in uh yeah i would say uh know what you're looking for and you also have to source a specialist broker you know it's it's being run through these full service brokers um and you can google what those are but uh mm -hmm. You know, I think uh, that there might be uh, somewhat of a, a barrier to that 
it's kind of interesting, right? That there, there's a barrier to entry to do the full service broker, right? Because they want a certain account size. Right. But then some of the market caps are $10 million. Yeah. <laughs> or $5 million, right? Yeah. So the thing is, you're getting up there. They, they want the account to be a major percentage of the company, right? That's an interesting little... Yeah, that is weird. Yeah. So I, that's a very good place to fish. Uh, that's what we do. But again, we're... we're uh, it's this is not a basket approach. This is sharpshooter approach. Got it. And so, would that mean? I mean, sharpshooter does that mean you know like less than ten? We'll call it public equity positions. You just kind of watch the basket really closely, or does that number kind of fluctuate based on the amount of opportunities you see? Well, uh, in the case of those, I mean, we view them as we actually view these as like owned businesses. Okay. And you'll kind of see us um, in some cases coming up. You know, will be above a five percent shareholder. In fact, one of my goals is to do a reverse merger with one of these and be public. Mm -hmm. but, but yeah, I mean, I I think um, it's it's a good place to fish. I, I think is the bottom line. And yeah, we view it as a private company. Um, we so there's no position size or portfolio size. You know, it, it can be one. In the case of Do Art. Uh, the film company with the building, we were only anticipating having that one and buying as much as it, much of it as we could. Mm -hmm. uh, but we've since find we've we've since um, found some others that are interesting. So I do think that's a a unique niche. Uh, people have kind of stopped talking about it. Really, yeah. it's gone kind of quiet, which makes it interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and I would also say, I mean, with market valuations um you know whether you look to shiller pe or whether you have a view that you know we're in a bear market or the or even more expansively the howard marks memo forecasting you know that we might be in a tough period for you know extended period of time this is non-correlated really with you know right you're the furthest from the index in this so it's kind of interesting as well yeah that is interesting especially when you think because I think a lot of people fear, like there's 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 great benefits, obviously, to not tracking the index. But one of the detractors is when the index is crushing it, it can sometimes hurt to <laughs> to be to be the farthest thing from the index. I mean, just from a pure principal agent perspective, right? If 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 you pitch your fund or if you pitch your investment vehicle as some uncorrelated doesn't track the index like that's great when the index is down and maybe you're down a little bit or up but when the index for the last decade is compounded yeah. like you know double digits and you're investing in these weird esoteric random companies and not generating that like you've got some serious principal agent issues but yeah. when when you look over at the next 10 to 20 years which is kind of what marx was saying in his memo um and how the returns might not be that great i mean obviously He's he said that I think for the last you know for the for the prior ten to twenty years. But you know if we if 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 we assume that returns won't be great, then having that divergence from the indices puts you at a better position regardless. Um, because if the returns aren't great in the index, you're not going to benefit from closet indexing. And so that's that's kind of an interesting dynamic now. I think we'll see all of that come out. Yeah. Yeah. I would say this. I mean, one of the other key takeaways. Um, the 50, this is a hundred percent of both, but the 50% coming, the 50% teal, both of them would strongly be of the view. You should never be pro-cyclical. 
-hmm. meaning if you are linked to you know anything that's an upward cycle when that cuts in reverse there are a lot of things that go wrong that that may even seem unrelated to what you know or maybe unrelated to what you're doing mm -hmm. you know and and so i mean this is seen in every economic downturn where something goes bust or it's collateral damage i mean that you know I, well now you're also laid off where now you know there's something else that starts cascading and i think i mean the investment industry is obviously full of that where if there, there's a lot of things like if, if you're pro-cyclical there's a lot of things that can hold together as it's going up that you don't realize are all part of one thing including just valuations when it goes down right that um, I mean, this is seen uh, even like in my town, right? That when the factories go bust, it's kind of how I became a distressed investor, right? <laughs> is that when, you know, in the late 90s, when the factories suddenly collapse in upstate New York, well, that also means a lot of businesses collapse. It's the domino effect, right? Mm -hmm. So it's sort of, well, oh, we're not in that manufacturing. Well, yes, you actually are. You have a derivative position. You have a second order right. position on it. Right. And so stuff starts going down or doing poorly, which you thought was, you're not part of it. Yeah. So what those guys would say, I mean, is always be counter cyclical. Because it's, it's almost like even if you make mistakes, you still kind of get the wind at your back a little bit as right. things come, you, you lower your risk. Right. Even if you don't, and I think that doesn't click with a lot of people actually, uh, plays to kind of what was recently done with the, uh, well, like the coal companies. I think it's the case today uh, mm -hmm. with the oil, <laughs> offshore oil company, that you don't need a lot to go right. That's, people don't get that because when it's so bled out cyclically that you can be, you can make mistakes and still do okay. Yeah. When you're in a place like Silicon Valley, you know, if you're flawless and you still the values collapse or something, right? It's like, <laughs> due to cyclical, yep. you know, business cycles. Yeah. That's kind of lost, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of it's just the capital cycle where valuations are propped up so high, it doesn't matter. I mean, you can, you can, you know, shoot the lights out of it and, the valuation goes from 10 times sales to five times sales and it, you know, you're, you're, you're screwed. It doesn't matter. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I, this is, this has been a sweet conversation. This, um, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad we, we, we got to do this. This was, uh, for those listening, I, we, we, we started this recording at, at 7 30 AM my time, which was the earliest I think I've ever recorded a podcast. So I didn't even have any caffeine either, which is, which is uh, fantastic on my part. Um, but Nick, thanks so much for, 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 for doing this. Um, I've just got a couple closing questions. The first one, where can people go to find out more about you? Well, Nick radical on Twitter, Nick radical Four. the DMS are open. So. <laughs> that's such a good, that's such a good Twitter handle. Um, and then the last question I have, if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? Well, that's a loaded question. And I, you know, I have dozens of answers there, but I'm going to go with uh, I'm going to go with Shai Dardashti. That's my pick. I've never heard of that person. Well, that's you know, we got a lot of important business to focus on, so and I'm 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 buying. So, <laughs> how do you spell his last name? 
D-A-R dash D-A-S-H-T-I. He's um, one of my good friends and, you know, the keeper of the flame for value investing of this generation. Interesting. I'll have to check them out. Awesome. All right, Nick. Well, thanks so much, man. This is this has been a great conversation. I appreciate you stopping by early this morning. Best of luck the rest of the year, and uh, you know, good luck with 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 the holding company and 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 finding finding these investments. And um, I appreciate you bringing a a a new a new lens uh, to investing with your mix of you know Ian Cumming and Peter Thiel. I think I think people are really going to enjoy it. So thanks so much. I appreciate it, Brandon. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive.